Well, it is graduation season. And congratulations, graduates. Do we have any graduates here this morning, high school or college? Anybody? There's some running out. Yeah. We're, congratulations. It, wow. It's exciting time. Some of you can remember back what it was to graduate. Some of you have to dig really deep to go back there. Uh, remember what that was like, all the excitement and, and the incredible fear. Right? That's the next thing that happens after you realize, yay! Oh no! <laughs> what do I do next? I have to go out into the world and you're supposed to succeed. And that's scary. What does it mean to succeed anyway? In the last couple of weeks, I've talked to a couple of folks who went to high school reunions in the last few weeks. And, um, yeah. Some people go there to catch up with old friends. Others just go there to find out what happened to everybody. You know, did they put on 400 pounds? Did they uh, become a bum? Did they uh, start up a company and have a gazillion dollars? Other people go there trying to impress people, you know, and they try to act like they're what they're not. But, you know, what do people think of when they think about successful, being successful? Many people think it's all about wealth, being rich, having mansions, luxury cars, yachts, whatever. Some people think it just to be successful is to be accomplished, to be at the top of your field or to be honored or to have some respected career. Some people think that uh, success is being famous, having lots of fans or having lots of Twitter followers or whatever. Just Maybe some people think it's just having a few people who like me. That would be success. Some folks think it's all about, you know, having a trophy wife or a trophy husband. Others just think, no, success is really 30 or 50 years later still having a husband or a wife who loves you or having kids who love you. Some people think that, no, success is just simply being contented. And uh, I can be the beach bum living on the beach, and as long as I'm contented, I'm successful. Or I can be the mountain man living up in the cabin by myself, and as long as I'm contented, I'm successful. Lots of different ideas about what being successful is out there. But I think, and I think most of us want to be successful. I have yet to meet a person who wants to be a failure, who wants to be a loser, Lots of folks end up being losers, as it were, at least in their estimation, but they didn't set out to be that. But if we want to set the target, if we want to hit the target, I should say, we probably ought to set the target, to know, at least define it. What is it? If we want to be successful, what does that mean, to be successful? I remember Pastor Kane, our first full-time pastor here at the chapel, used to say, you know, many people spend their whole life trying to climb the ladder of success and then they finally reach the top and discover it's leaning against the wrong building. So it is. Well, today we're starting a new message series which we're going to be in over the rest of the summer. And it's looking at the life of one of the greatest men in the Bible. I invite you to take your Bibles, I think you'll want it this morning, and open up your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, and Jeremiah chapter 1. Now, we won't go through, over the course of the summer, we won't go through 
the book of Jeremiah chapter by chapter and verse by verse, as we often do with some books. Part of the reason is because there's a lot more chapters than we have summer. The other reason is the book of Jeremiah is probably the hardest book in the Bible to outline. Most theologians and scholars just kind of come up with something, but everybody kind of throws their hands up and says, we're not really sure. Some people have accused his secretary, whose name was Baruch, of uh, on the way to the printer, he accidentally dropped the stack and things kind of got out of, you know, out, out of place. It can be a challenge to outline, but what we're going to do over the summer is we're going to just be going through the book, looking at some different stories and some different messages from the book over the course of the summer, things that really apply to us and grab us. But this morning, we're going to be here in chapter 1 and looking at this issue of, as we look at Jeremiah, look at this issue of success. As our story opens, it's going to help us to get just a little bit of, a little bit of background information because most of us are probably not aware of, of what's going on at this time and it helps us to get the story as we go through the book to just know what's going on around in history and particularly in the land of Judah. The year is 627 B.C. Good things were happening in Judah. Judah is the southern kingdom of Israel. So just to refresh our memory, you may recall that about 350 years before this, right after King Solomon dies, you remember that it was earlier this year, wasn't it? Or was it last year when we were going through the story of Samuel, the life of Samuel, And Samuel brought in the first of the kings, King Saul. And there's King Saul and King David and King David's son, King Solomon. And after King Solomon died, there was a problem with his son. We won't get into all that, but the nation split. There was a civil war, as it were, and the nation split into northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. The northern kingdom never followed God. They walked away from God, did their own thing, and despite the warning from many prophets, God kept saying, if you don't turn to me, I will judge you, and they didn't, and God did. And in the year 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was basically wiped out by the nation of Assyria. The southern kingdom... They sometimes followed God, but most of the time the people's hearts were kind of far away from God and the king's hearts were far away from God. And over the period of time, they kept moving farther away and then kind of swing back a little with where they turned to God for a bit and then they move back. And every time they kind of move a little farther and a little farther away from God. So that now, 350 years after the kingdom divided, The northern kingdom is gone. The southern kingdom has gotten many warnings from the prophets saying, look, God says if you don't turn from your sin and turn back to me, I am going to judge you. They've had the example of the northern kingdom. But they still don't listen. And now it's almost a hundred years after Israel, the northern kingdom's demise, And Judah is in the midst of their darkest 
in their most wicked and their most godless years. All of Judah and Jerusalem had been filled with idols. Even the temple itself had been desecrated with idols and profane worship of false gods. Violence and immorality were rampant in the southern kingdom of Judah. Sorcery and the occult were being practiced in Judah. Children were even being sacrificed as burnt offerings to these other gods. And then the current king at that time, a man named Manasseh, dies. And a young boy, eight years old, inherits the throne. His name is Josiah. He becomes king at age eight. And around age 16, King Josiah begins to seek God with all of his heart. And then a few years later, at age 20, King Josiah begins now to try to turn the nation around. He is committed follower of God. And he begins to try to lead a revival in the land. He abolishes idol worship and they start ridding the land of idols and idolatry. They cleanse Jerusalem. They cleanse the temple. They purify the temple he starts a whole renovation and, and, and uh, remodeling and repairing because it had fallen into disrepair of the temple. And now as our story opens, it's one year into that great revival. It's the 13th year of Josiah's reign. Idols are being removed. Things are happening. Good things are happening. Verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, one of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. And it also came in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. So what are we getting out of all that? Just a little background on Jeremiah, on Jeremiah the man. We discover his background that he is the son of Hilkiah. And we, we don't see it here, but if you go over to 2 Kings chapter 22, you discover that Hilkiah is the high priest. And so Jeremiah is a young man, about 20 years old. He's the son of the high priest. And not only is he the son of the high priest, we discover here in our passage that he is one of the priests who were in Anathoth. He is serving, actively serving as a priest. He's serving God. Jeremiah is already a godly man and he is already busy serving God. When God approaches, as it were, he speaks to Jeremiah. By the way, I have from time to time had heard people say, I want to serve God, but I don't know what to do. What, what would you tell someone like that? My answer is simply this. You want to serve God? Yes! Now, what do you do? Get busy. 
Don't sit around doing nothing because I'm just waiting for God to show me what to do. Look in front of you and whatever is there to do to serve God, start on it. You'll soon find out if you're any good at that or not. And you know what? Other doors will open. And what if God doesn't want you doing whatever good thing there that's in front of you, He will steer you to something else. But as my pastor used to say when I was growing up, but it's very hard to steer a parked car. That's why you need to get busy. You start serving and God's going to steer you where He wants you to go. Well, that's his background. He's a priest, the son of the high priest. He's a young man, around 20. His tenure, how long does he serve God? God's going to call him here. We already know because we talk about it. He's the prophet. How long is he going to serve? His ministry lasts about 40 years. We get that out of this very text right here. I won't go into it, but he says he starts in the 13th year of King Josiah. He, he goes through actually four kings. It mentions two here because two of those four only serve for three months. He mentions Jehoiakim and he mentions uh, Zedekiah. Zedekiah, he says he, he ministers until the 11th year of Zedekiah, which was the end not only of Zedekiah, but the end of Judah, the end of the kingdom, it is over. The kingdom that started back with Saul and David and Solomon and on through over these last centuries now comes to an abrupt end. And by the way, from that time until now, there has not been another son of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. Ezekiel tells us that it won't happen until the one comes to whom it belongs. That is Jesus Christ. When He comes back, He Himself will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Pastor Larry mentioned that a couple of weeks ago. What that means though is that Jeremiah serves as a prophet for a little over 41 years. His calling, verse 4 to 5, God says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you and I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations. Mostly, Jeremiah is giving the word of God to the people of Judah, to the the Israelites there in, in the land of Judah, but he also speaks words from God to other nations. In the book of Jeremiah, you find those in the uh, in chapters 46 to 51 we find those prophecies to the other nations nine different nations receive words from god through jeremiah in verses 5 through 9 i want to bring our attention though to his preparation what preparation does god give for a man to be a prophet well in jeremiah's case we read it here We already read in verses 4 and 5, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. And I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God says, I knew you before you were born. And I made you. I formed you in your mother's womb. And I knew you before that. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. And before you were born, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah was made by God. He was known by God. He was chosen by God. He was appointed by God. By the way, just a little aside, one of the big reasons as believers in Jesus Christ, as people who believe the Word of God, one of the big reasons that we cannot be supportive of abortion is because we realize that human life begins at conception, not at birth. That is clear in this passage. God says, before you were born, I knew you, I consecrated you, I I appointed you to be a prophet. I formed you in the womb. Psalm 139, we read it a week or two ago, says very similarly that you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Even before I was born, you knew me, you knew my days. Every day that was appointed for me was written in your book before one of them came to be. Human life begins at conception and we have to, there's no other choice if, we're, if we believe the book. And so we honor and value life in the womb. Pick it up again in verse 6 because there's more about his preparation here. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak for I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah's response to God calling him to be a prophet is, uh, <coughs> God, look, I'm, I'm just a young guy. And I don't know how to speak very well. I'm not articulate. I don't even know what to say. I, I really... I'm kind of learning the role of priest here. Prophet, it's kind of beyond me. Uh, I, I don't think so. God interrupts him and says, hmm, don't say that. Where I send you, you go. What I tell you to say, you say. Most of us can understand, by the way. Most of us have faced situations where we're being asked to take on something, we're put in something, and we, we feel inadequate. And I think any of us, if God spoke to us and said, I want you to do this, most of us would be, I, I don't think I'm qualified for that. But God's response is, no. I will direct you. I will tell you where to go and what to say. I will be with you. I am with you. I will accompany you. God says, I will protect you. I will be with you. I will deliver you. I'll protect you. He also says, I've put my words in your mouth. I have equipped you. I've enabled you. He's directed by God, accompanied by God, protected by God, enabled by God. Quite frankly, most of us who struggle from time to time with, I don't know how to serve God. And when we are given opportunities to serve God, we say, I'm not really competent. I'm not capable. I'm not qualified. I'm not this. We have all our excuses. And we say, you know what? If I had this list from God of promises, I wouldn't have a bit of trouble serving God. And I got good news. Because every one of these things I can find about you in Scripture we're all made by God, formed in our mother's womb, knitted together, as Psalm 139 says. He knows us. 
Because He made us intricately. We're also chosen by God. Ephesians chapter 1, every one of us was chosen by Him as believers before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 2, right after it says, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10, For we are His workmanship in Christ Jesus, created for good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Before you were ever born, God created works for you to do. And He created you for those works. God will tells us in His Word the most important things we need to know and we need to do are all right here in God's Word. We have His direction. He says He'll be with us. Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. Right after He gives us the commission, go and make disciples. He says He will be with us. Always to the end of the age. Also says, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. As He commissions us in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, He says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and we talked just over the last couple of weeks, we all as believers have received the Holy Spirit. We have His power to do His work and we have been gifted by His Spirit to do whatever work He has for us to do. We read Jeremiah here, we think, wow, that's all so special. We don't have that. Well, we do. We didn't hear the audible voice of God, but we have the Word of God, which tells us all these things are true for us. That's his preparation. Let's look at his mission, verse 10. Here's the mission. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. What's the job description for Jeremiah as a prophet? Jeremiah is going to oversee cataclysmic changes in his life and in his times. I've set you this day over nations. Jeremiah is going to be a part of the destruction of kingdoms, the overthrowing, the plucking up and the tearing down Basically, of all of the world as he knew it, everything's coming down. And to build and to plant. But Jeremiah is not going to do this. We have people in our world today who want to tear down the system, who want to tear things up. They're social agitators. We have politicians who want to remake things into what they want things to be. And they do it through political manipulations and through political maneuverings. There are people who want to do it through power and military or through terrorist groups, through coups and through all kinds of things. But he's not, he's not doing this by political maneuverings or by power or even by subterfuge or anarchy. Matter of fact, the reality is Jeremiah is not doing this at all. Jeremiah's job is not to bring about, to to tear it up, to tear down. His job is not to uproot. His job is messenger. God is going to do it. Jeremiah's job is to say, here's what God is going to do and predict what God is going to do as God tells him. And then his job is to tell people, what they are to do, as God says, now tell the people to do this. If you do this, you'll live. If you don't do this, you're going to die. If you do this, you will prosper. If you don't do this, 
bad things will happen. And then his job is while things are happening to narrate. This is what God said was going to happen. And here it is. And that's what Jeremiah does all through this book. He tells what God is going to do. He tells what the people need to do. And he narrates as God is doing these things. Verses 17 through 19, God tells Jeremiah the cost of this job and of this mission. Verse 17, but you dress yourself for work. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. Do not be dismayed by them, lest I dismay you before them. Jeremiah, I made you for this. I'm telling you this is your job. Here it is. Now get ready because we start today. I don't know about you, but if it were me, I'd be saying, you know, can I have a week or two here to take a little vacation before we start into this? Because it's sounding kind of intense. So get up. Get ready for work. Move. Already sounds like this is not going to be fun, especially when you get to that part of don't let them dismay you. That dismays me right away. There are going to be people dismaying me or trying to. Dismaying means discouraged, intimidate. This job doesn't sound like it's going to be very fun. It gets worse. Verse 18. And behold, I make you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls. In other words, he's describing a fortress. I make you a fortified city, a fortress. I make you a wall of iron, of brass. I am going to protect you. Why do I need protecting? Interesting thing, by the way, about fortresses. I've noticed that fortresses don't tend to come in groups. You have a fortress. Then over there, maybe you have a fortress a long way away. But you don't tend to have a fortress right next to a fortress, right next to a fortress, right next to a fortress. You don't have a pack of fortresses. You know what that tells me? God says, you're going to be a fortress. I'm going to protect you, but you're going to be alone. How alone are you going to be? Well, I'm protecting you from them. Who is them? The verse goes on. Against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. Who did he leave out? The whole land. That, didn't, that kind of got everybody. The kings, just in case we think they're special. Its officials, its priests, everybody in authority. And all the people of the land. In other words, you're going to be totally alone. And everybody is against you. This is really not sounding good. It gets worse. Verse 19. They will fight against you. Not they might. They will And who's they? Everybody. Everybody will fight against you. Here's the one good news in all this, or some of the good news. They will not prevail against you. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. Wow. How many of you want the job? When I read, I've read commentaries and 
books over the years on Jeremiah. He gets a number of nicknames by theologians and commentators and pastors. One of the nicknames he's earned over the years, they call him the Reluctant Prophet. The Reluctant Prophet, they say that because back up in verse 6 when God says, I've commissioned you to be a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah says, I'm just a young guy, I don't know anything. And they say, see, he's the Reluctant Prophet. He doesn't want to be the prophet. And I say, I'd say that. Most of us would. I'm not qualified. I can't do that. What I'm amazed by there is not that he was he asked the question or said, I, I'm not qualified, but that God says, just do what I say. Go where I say. Say what I say. And he goes, there's no response from Jeremiah. There's no, uh, but Moses had three times that he was, Jeremiah just once says, okay, all right, God, good. What really blows me away is that that was before God said all this. Right now, if I were him, I would be right now, here's my resignation letter. I got the record for the shortest time of being a prophet. I made it for 10 minutes, you know, but thank you, but you can send somebody else, anybody else, you know. I don't want to be totally on my own against everybody. That sounds frightening. It sounds lonely. But far from being a reluctant prophet, Jeremiah, from this moment on, we hear not a word of complaint. God has just told him how bad it's going to be. And there's not a word of complaint. There's not a word of reticence on Jeremiah's part. What we see instead is from this moment on, Jeremiah, from this point until his story ends and he disappears off the page, Jeremiah is a committed, faithful, unyielding servant of God. Oh, he has some dark days, but he never He never fails to do what God says. How remarkable. What we have here to notice this morning is Jeremiah's faithfulness. His first 18 years of ministry as a prophet were during the reign of King Josiah. Josiah, the good and godly king who started as that young guy. And... Jeremiah starts 13 years into Josiah's reign. And those 18 years are not easy, but under those years he has a godly king who provides protection. And he has good rapport with this king. But it's not easy because during these years, the things that Jeremiah says as Jeremiah just gives the people God's Word, the things that he says, the people hear it and go, uh, yeah. For one thing, Jeremiah understands because God is telling him that while Josiah is leading this great revival in the land, the people themselves are going along, but their hearts, for the most part, are not in it. 
The king says, get rid of the idols. They get rid of the idols. The king says, come worship God. They come worship God. They dress up nice. They sing the songs. They sing the songs loud. They participate in all the stuff, but their hearts are far from God. And these people, when they hear Jeremiah, and Jeremiah and his messages point out their hypocrisy, and Jeremiah and his messages point out that God's judgment is still coming because you do not care about God. You're hypocrites. And the people, they blow Jeremiah off. More than that, they laugh. They laugh him to scorn. Matter of fact, Jeremiah in, I can't remember, I think it's chapter 16, Jeremiah says, I am a laughing stock. I am the butt of everybody's jokes. See, what Jeremiah is saying is going to happen, the people say, no way. You're smoking something, buddy. <laughs> you know. See, Jeremiah eventually starts naming where this judgment is coming from. He says it's coming from Babylon. And that would be like today saying that the United States is going to be wiped out by Guatemala. <laughs> You're kidding me, right? I mean, we got to worry about Russia. We got to worry about China. We got to worry about Iran and and, uh, you know, terrorists, but Guatemala? I've been there. Those are the nicest people ever. They're not warlike. They don't have, I've seen their Air Force. It's like three helicopters. No. Yep. That was what it was to say Babylon is coming. Assyria was the great power of the day. They had destroyed the northern kingdom. And almost destroyed us. By God's grace, we were delivered from them. And in the intervening almost century, they've lost power. But they're still the dominant power. And second to them is Egypt down to our south. Babylon is nothing. We've been living here in security all these years. Jeremiah, you're you're nuts. We got nothing to worry about, and so they continue living as they have been. Twenty years, he's a laughing stock. Then, out of the blue, oh, before that, Josiah dies. King Josiah is killed. Well, actually, first Babylon goes up, and Babylon defeats Nineveh. They're fighting Nineveh, the Assyrians. Josiah dies. Babylon defeats Assyria. Babylon defeats Egypt. Suddenly Babylon is the new superpower. Josiah is gone. His protection from a godly king is gone. The first king that comes back into, that comes into power is evil to the core. And the people immediately turn from following God and go right back to all the garbage that was there before Josiah. All of the immorality, all of the idolatry, all of the, the violence, all of the, all of the wickedness that was there is almost instantaneously back right where it was because the hearts of the people hadn't changed. Jeremiah finds himself in the crosshairs of very powerful people and very wicked people. Over the next 20 years, he was often persecuted. 
just as his words were starting to be vindicated, he becomes a bigger enemy and a bigger threat and less welcomed and more persecuted. Over the next 20 years, people from his own hometown plotted to kill him. His own family turned on him and betrayed him. He was branded as a liar. He was branded as a traitor. He was beaten. He was put into stocks. He was put into prison. He was scourged with, you know, with whips like Jesus was that could kill you. That kind of scourging. He was thrown into a cistern one time, a big pit so is normally to hold water, but there was no water and it was just deep, deep, deep mud. They threw him in this deep, deep pit, closed it up with a rock, understanding that one of two things was going to happen. He was either going to sink into the mud and drown in mud or he's going to die of hunger. We really don't care which. That was Jeremiah's life over the next 20 years as he sought to serve God faithfully and be a mouthpiece. But his greatest sufferings were not in that. His greatest sufferings were a broken heart for his people. He was often called, another one of those nicknames, he's called a weeping prophet. Because he often weeped for his people. Here's one. But if you, he's speaking to the, pe- to the people, he says, if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. If you guys won't repent, if you won't change, I'm just going to cry my eyes out. Why? Because of your pride. Because you're so stinking stubborn. And you're blind to what's coming. And you're going to pay an awful cost. And he weeped bitterly. He wept bitterly for the people who hated him, the people who persecuted him, and he cried for them because he did not want them to suffer the judgment that was coming. Jeremiah, of all people in Scripture, is probably the best example of the heart of Jesus Christ himself. We'll maybe see that in weeks ahead. He weeps over the sin of the people. He weeps over the sorrow that that sin brings to God. He weeps over the consequences that sin is bringing to the people right now as society falls apart. And he weeps for the judgment that is coming because of that sin. He's the weeping prophet. He weeps because he at times is just a broken man himself. He is weighed down by all the suffering that he sees. He's weighed down by all the sin that he is surrounded by. He's weighed down by the the stubbornness of the people. He's weighed down by just everything. It wears on him and he, he falls at times into depression and he cries out to God, Oh, I wish I hadn't been born. You ever felt like that? You have a friend in Jeremiah. Good godly people sometimes get very discouraged and sometimes very depressed even. Jeremiah cries out to God. He takes it to God and says, here it is. He just lays it out there, even as David does in the Psalms. Do you know what I noticed? No matter what he went through, no matter how depressed and how discouraged he was, Jeremiah never, ever, ever falters. He never quits. Even when he doesn't feel like it, he gets up and he gets going. When God says go, he goes. What a wonderful example of faithfulness. Jeremiah was there when finally the time for repentance, the time for change was gone. 
and the judgment began. Jeremiah was there and he never left the people. He stayed with them. He was there when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, invaded in 605 B.C. When there was so much suffering, so many atrocities as, as the city is taken and as many people are taken off as captives to Babylon and with them Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, or you know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And all of the, the brightest and the noblest and the, the fair young up-and-comers are all taken as captives to Babylon. He stays there. There's a king that is working underneath as a vassal king serving Nebuchadnezzar. King Jehoiakim, he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar comes back another time, 597 B.C. Again, attacks. Again, there is much bloodshed, much destruction as he takes the city once again and this time takes 10,000 captives back to Babylon. A different king is appointed under another king of Judah to serve under Nebuchadnezzar. That's Zedekiah. Zedekiah, again, another evil man. He, again, rebels against Babylon And in 586, Nebuchadnezzar's army once more comes and this time they destroy everything. They destroy Judah. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And they take back as captives almost everybody. There's just a few of the the poorest, of the feeblest, of the the least important. A few of these folks left and a few folks that have managed to hide out wherever left in the land, and Jeremiah stays there with them. It's all come to a crashing halt. Each time, by the way, there were words from God through Jeremiah that if you guys do this, the punishment stops right here. It won't get any worse. But they never listened. Every time they rebelled against God as well, and more things happened. Now everything is done. After 40 years of hard, difficult, tear-stained labor, Jeremiah had little to show for all of his efforts in ministry. There were no revivals, no miracles, no deliverances, no victories, no faithful followers, no faithful band of followers here. Everything lays in ruins. The nation, the capital, the temple. Jeremiah has stayed with them through it all. He never left them, but nobody ever listened. And we wonder was Jeremiah a success or was he a failure? He faithfully spoke God's word. And remember, that was the mission. God said, wherever I tell you to go, you go. What I tell you to say, you say. And Jeremiah was faithful in that all these years. Not only that, but almost immediately after all the judgment had fallen, as the dust settled, everybody recognized, at least everybody in Babylon is recognizing, you know what? Jeremiah was a prophet. He spoke God's word. Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 says, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. You understand what he just said? 
Jeremiah was a prophet. He spoke the word of the Lord. And what he wrote is Scripture. Yeah. And lots of folks apparently understood that now. Not only did he speak God's word, his writings gave hope to those exiles in Babylon. The punishment had fallen, but now these exiles, while they had ignored Jeremiah's words before, now they clung to his words because the main message of the book of his writings are judgment is coming if you don't repent. Judgment is coming if you don't repent. God will judge. God will judge. But there's a second message. If you won't listen, and you won't, you're going to go into captivity, and you will, but God's going to restore you. And those captives in Babylon clung to that hope. There's hope coming. Jeremiah was a faithful and successful minister for God. Not only that, his ministry changed a nation. From the time that the people of Israel left Egypt until the time that they went as captives into Babylon, they continually stumbled into idolatry. Not just stumbled into it, they plunged headlong into it. Over and over and over and over and over and over again. You know, from the time that they came back from Babylon into the land, when God restored them to the land, from that time on you will notice that the Israelites, the Jews, never worshipped idols again. They finally learned the lesson through Jeremiah the prophet, through the judgment that God brought in the time of Jeremiah. His teaching was a part of that. His writings have ongoing impact to this day. Millions have been impacted through his writings. He has encouraged the suffering. He strengthened the discouraged. He strengthened servants of God, encouraged them to keep going when life, when ministry is tough. He's been an example of faithfulness and of humility and of godliness. He's challenged the complacent and the rebellious who think that somehow they can, they can just go along and ignore God and everything will be fine. He has an impact even today. But Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, you may remember Hebrews 11 in the New Testament. It's, it's often called the Hall of Fame of Faith. It names people like Abraham and Moses and Noah, great heroes of the faith. You look in Hebrews chapter 11 and you go through the list of names there and Jeremiah's name is not there. But, verse 36, it says this, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. I can think of very few, if any others, other than Jeremiah who get everything on this list. I think in that little verse, the author has Jeremiah in mind. And either directly or indirectly, he's describing Jeremiah. And he says of this one and all these others in this chapter, these were commended for their faith. Because they were faithful, yet they did not receive what was promised in this life. They did not receive earthly reward. But... God plans something better, he says. He goes on to say. See, these, like others it mentions earlier in chapter 11 there in Hebrews, they were looking not for an earthly city, 
that men built. They were looking for a city that God built. They were looking for their reward in heaven for eternity, not for a little while here on earth. That was Jeremiah. The fruits of his labor showed him little fruits in his lifetime. But he has a reward that is forevermore and one which he will share and we will share with him. He will share with us. We'll be there together. And it's going to be marvelous. Real success is not measured by all the things that our world tends to value, measure success by. It's not by possessions. It's not by pleasures. It's not by honors. It's not by comfort. It's not by family. Those things aren't evil in themselves, but if we make them the measure of our success, we fail. The one measure of success that matters is when we stand before God if He says, Well done. Good job. You've been a faithful and good servant. That's a successful life. That was Jeremiah. Question is, what about us? If you're like me, there's an awful big tendency to slip from day to day and get my focus on all the things that don't matter. They're not bad. They're not wrong. They just can easily get in the way. The one thing that matters is, do I love God first? And is it my desire to do whatever He wants? That was Jeremiah. Let's follow his example. Father, thank You for this. We needed this. It's convicting. It's challenging. For some of us, it might even be a little frightening. That's exactly what I was afraid of. If I say, God, I'll do whatever you want, then I'm going to end up like Jeremiah. I'm going to be suffering. You're going to send me to some forsaken place out in the middle of nowhere, and I'm going to have to live with, with big roaches and ants and serve you and poverty. And, and uh, Father, the reality is you've sent very few of us to do that. But if you ever do... It'll be good. You'll even make it where it's a blessing to us. Father, may we learn from Jeremiah not to be afraid to trust You. May we be motivated from Jeremiah to get up and get to work and to aim to be faithful because You are the faithful God who is busy working things far beyond anything we can imagine or think, things that are wonderful and marvelous, things that last forever. Help us, Lord, to see what really matters from the perspective of eternity, not the perspective of our own little eyes that we see around us. Lord, we are so prone to do that. So, Father, may it be said of the men and the women, the young people in this church, that they love Jesus above all. And they want to do what He wants them to do. May that characterize our lives. For then we will be successful. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.